This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, good morning, Anchor Church. Good to see you here this morning. My name is Matt. If I've not met you before, I'd love to meet you after the service. And uh, if you're here and have not been at church for quite some time, maybe a few years, a few months, then especially a huge welcome to you. This series really is about speaking to those who have walked away from the church, maybe even walked away from your faith altogether, um, or maybe even thinking about that. Maybe you're wrestling with your faith at the moment and you're wondering, should I, should I stay here? Is this, is this where my life is really supposed to be? Is this, do I want to spend my life living for Jesus? And so this series really is for those who have checked out on church. And, and really, there's a long list of reasons why you might do that. Maybe you've been hurt by someone in the church. Maybe a leader of the church has hurt you or spiritually abused you or said something that has driven you away. Maybe you felt that your church experience has been entirely irrelevant. Maybe it was rules-based. Maybe what the world had on offer for you seemed far better than what was on offer for you at the church. Maybe there were no potential life partners for you and so you went looking elsewhere. All sorts of reasons. Some of those are understandable reasons for why people would check out of church and perhaps walk away from Jesus. But I want to suggest that none of those are good enough reasons to stay away altogether. My journey was very similar to James's, actually. It was a journey of one who ran from God, one that checked out on church altogether and sought the approval of people and pursued acceptance from those around me. Um, and I, I kind of felt like um, a real resonance with James's story as he was sharing that because so much of what I was looking for, all this acceptance and approval was the very thing that God had on offer for me and I was rejecting it and walking away from it and pursuing those things elsewhere. And in the end, all of them left me unsatisfied and empty and yearning. And eventually God wooed me back by his grace. And I believe that journey has given me a heart for the prodigal, the wayward, the spiritual battler, whatever you want to call it. I believe that, and 17 years of youth ministry, seeing kids who have grown up in church and then walk away from church altogether, God has given me a particular heart for those who have really wrestled with their faith and have checked out on church. And so our hope is that you would be blessed by this, whether you're here this morning or you're watching online, our hope is that you would see that God loves you. Last week we saw that, didn't we? We saw God's heart of compassion that God is searching for those who have walked away, that God is longing for the lost to come home, we saw that the key message from Luke 15 is that God is willing to welcome with open arms anyone who would come home, anyone who would come to Him in repentance and faith. We saw that the younger son, if you remember from Luke 15, he has that moment of realization as he's feeding pigs in the pigsty and he comes back to his father with a prepared speech and he says to him effectively, Dad, would you hire me as a hired servant that I might pay off this debt that I've incurred? And what does the father say? He interrupts that speech. He calls him a son. He throws a party, puts a robe on him, rings on him, sandals on him. And we saw that quote from my friend Alex early last week, that God is not hiring employees, he's adopting children. God is not hiring employees, he's adopting children. 
And that's what we're going to look at this week. This idea of adoption, that the Father, that God would adopt us and call us to be his own sons and daughters and call us into his family. What does it mean? If God is not hiring us, if we're not called to work this debt off, and if he is adopting us into his family, what does that mean for us? My hope this morning is that you would encounter God's love again as a good father who loves you, is for you, and has called you into his family. So I'm going to pray for us as we begin. Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to us. We know our hearts are so prone to wanting to work this debt off, to wanting to fix ourselves up before we come back to church, wanting to get ourselves right before we would be acceptable to you. But I thank you for that promise, that truth, that you're not looking to hire employees, you're adopting children. God, would you show us this morning what it looks like, what it means, the wonderful privilege it is to be called a son or a daughter that you would speak those words over us. Father, would we encounter your love this morning afresh? We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. You know, there is a a plethora of data and research that tells us of the importance of an involved dad in children's lives, of an involved dad, a dad that is engaged in his, his, his son or daughter's life. And all of the research tells us that there are a number of measures. Stephen Bidoff, who's one of Australia's most prominent child psychologists, lists off a bunch of things that benefit a child when they have an involved dad in their life. Things like they do better at school. They have better social and emotional stability. They're more confident. They have more social connections. They have better verbal skills. They have better intellectual functioning. And the list kind of goes on and on and on and on. And what happened was research in the area of psychology discovered that the the presence of an involved dad was really significant. In the 1970s, all of this research started to roll out. Now, that's not to say that mums aren't important. They are. They're as equally as important as an involved dad. But for so long, many fathers went to work and checked out on their families and weren't involved. And then all of a sudden, we've discovered that, that actually an involved dad is really important. Why is that the case? Because so much of who we are, so much of our identity, so much of our sense of self comes from a relationship with our parents and particularly a relationship with our fathers. And what's true of us in relationship with our earthly fathers is more so true in relationship with our heavenly father. That God has called us into his family and adopted us. That is one of the most significant identity statements that we find in our Bibles. That we've been adopted. That we've been called his own. That is a new identity that is yours in Christ if you follow him. I believe that every person in this room has been created by God, for relationship with God. That means that if you have cut that relationship off, you have rejected something that is fundamental to who you are as a person, as a human. Every person is created a worshiper. We're created for relationship with 
God. And this morning, what I want you to see is that relationship with God is so key and so amazing and such a wonderful privilege that we would be called His children. That we would get to call God Abba. That we would be heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Those are such stunning privileges. But before we see what we're saved for, that is adoption, we need to know what we've been saved from and what we've been saved by. So in verse 3 there, Paul says to us that we were enslaved. That we're enslaved to the world, we're enslaved to our sinful natures, that we've been enslaved to the enemy, that we've been enslaved by the elementary principles of this world. Every single person. Slaves. Now, a slave is someone who has been controlled or owned or restricted by another person. And that's a pretty apt description of us and our relationship with sin, the world, and the devil. That we are controlled, that we've been restricted, that we cannot say no to sin, that we are unable to flee the shackles that bind us. Sin is a cruel but yet very familiar master that we bow to daily. And Jesus redeems us. Have a look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. To redeem those who are under the law. You know, in the first century, at sadly, still today this happens. But in the first century, men and women and children were enslaved, were owned were sold and bought and forced into labor against their will. Some were born slaves. There's a generation, a family lineage of slavery. Some had to sell themselves into slavery because of a debt that they owed and they had to sell themselves to the person that they owed the debt to. Some were a, a, a slave as a result of a war or a military campaign. And the only way to find your freedom in the first century was if someone made a payment. Was if someone paid the price, and that payment is called redemption, where someone is purchased, a price is paid to set you free. You were bought out of slavery. And verse 5 tells us there that Jesus redeems us. Jesus redeems us. He purchases us, purchases us out of slavery. And the price that Jesus pays to set us free is his life. His body, his blood. He dies on the cross so that you could go free. Mark 10 tells us that Jesus did not come to serve, but to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. We've been redeemed. You know, think of a story that uh, a friend of mine, Pete, tells. He. Um, Moved out west to go and minister at a church that I, I used to attend and moved into a big share house and he took his prized stereo possession. Now, we don't have stereos anymore. We just have these little Bluetooth speakers, right? But back in the day, everyone had big stereo systems, like 1,200 watt stereo systems. And Pete took his stereo system and one day their house got robbed and his stereo was stolen from his bedroom. And he was um, very upset and missed his stereo and one day he walked into cash converters in Mount Druid and lo and behold, there was his stereo. But the problem was he couldn't prove it was his. He hadn't recorded serial numbers. He knew it was his stereo and what he had to do to get it back was he had to go and 
pay a sum of money to purchase that stereo back to cash converters so it could be his again. He had to redeem it back. It was his to begin with, but he had to pay a price to own it a second time. Every single person has been created for relationship with God, by God. That means he owns you. You're his. But in Christ... He redeems you. He pays the price for your sin and purchases you back. And if you have faith in Jesus, you belong to God twice. We've all been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He has set us free from slavery by redemption and for adoption. We've been set free from slavery by redemption for Adoption, so that we would be adopted into God's family. Come back to verse 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, that we would be adopted into God's family, and specifically there, that we would be adopted as sons. Now, you might wonder, why doesn't Why doesn't the translation of the Bible use gender-neutral language at that point? Like, why doesn't it translate it adopted as children or adopted as sons and daughters? Because if it did, it would lose a really important theological concept that is deeply profound. And that is, in the first century, the firstborn son was the one who would receive most, if not all, of the inheritance. And so when... Paul says there that you've received adoption as sons. He's actually using a legal term that reads literally that you've received the sonship. The firstborn son received all of the inheritance, all of the father's wealth. And so in the first century, a man who had no children, a man who had no son could adopt a slave and that slave would receive the sonship. They would receive a legal identity as the son, the firstborn son of this wealthy man. And all of the the, the protections and all of the blessings that were afforded a firstborn, legally recognized. To receive the sonship means that every person who has faith in Jesus has received the right to be called a son or a daughter of God and stands as heir of his inheritance. Recognized as a child, afforded the blessings of God's kingdom, the security of a firstborn. Now, isn't that exactly what we saw last week in Luke 15? As the younger son comes home and requests that the father would make him a slave in his house, The father says, no, 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 you're not going to work this debt off. I'm welcoming you back into the family as a son. Puts his robe on him. Puts what is probably his personal family ring on him. And says, you're in. And you can enjoy all of the blessings of the inheritance. Most of it you've wasted. All of your share, in fact, you've wasted. But come in as a son. When God saves you, When God adopts you into his family, it's like you become his firstborn son. You receive the sonship. Now now just stop for a second and let that sink in. Let that reality 
cross that cultural divide into 2018 and let the reality sink in that the Father has loved you like his only firstborn son. Like Jesus. God loves you like he loves Jesus. Isn't that a stunning reality? And you know, that's, that's what Jesus actually prayed for you. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays this. I made them known your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you, Father, have loved me may be in them. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Jesus asks that the love that the Father has for his Son, the love of God the Father for Jesus the Son would be in us. Now how much do you suppose God loves his Son? Could there be any more fuller Perfect, deeper, richer love in the whole universe than the eternal love of the Father for the Son. Than the love that binds the dance of the Trinity together. There is no purer love. And Jesus' prayer is that we would experience what He has experienced for all of eternity. The love of the Father. The love of the Father. It's intimacy that we get with God. The kind of intimacy that gets to call God Abba. Have a look at verse 4 and 5 again. Or verse 5 and 6. So that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic word, and it means father, but not in a formal sense. Right? It's much more the term that you would find in the home, and it means papa or daddy or whatever cultural version of dad you have in your, your family background. The spirit cries, daddy, papa. What a privilege that is. You know, probably my most favorite point of my day is at 5.30 when I get home from work and my keys go into the front door and they open the door and the door opens and it slams. We've got one of those automatic closing doors. It slams behind me and I hear from the lounge room these footsteps and then these cries, Daddy, Daddy, and Judah and Piper come running down the hallway and literally running down the hallway and crash tackle me and bowl me over and give me a cuddle and... I love that moment, closely followed by the moment I get to say hi to my wife and give her a kiss. That moment where my kids cry out, Daddy, that is the privilege that we have now in Christ. We get to call God, the God of the universe, the one who strung the stars into space, the one who spoke a word and created this world, the one who is holy, the one in whom there is no darkness, we get to call him Daddy. That is a wonderful privilege of our adoption. God is not interested in an obliging relationship. 
He wants intimacy. He wants to know us. He wants to be known by us. So let me ask you, is, is that your experience of God? Isn't, isn't that what we all want deep down? To know God, to be known, to be loved unconditionally, irrespective of our mistakes. If you've walked away from Jesus, if you've checked out on church, is that the type of relationship that you've been missing? We get to call God Daddy. But you know what? It actually gets better, believe it or not. Because what happens when your daddy is the richest, wealthiest person in the whole universe, right? You stand to inherit everything. You stand to inherit the kingdom. Have a look at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Everything that the father has is yours. That's what the, the father in Luke 15 says to his sons. All of what I have is yours. Because you're an heir. Imagine for a second. You're a child, brought up in an orphanage, no parents, no means of supporting yourself, very little food on your table, and in walks the orphanage one day, Bill Gates. And he says, I'm going to adopt you. And you go home. And all of the paperwork is signed. Legally, you become Bill Gates' son or daughter. And you stand to inherit all of Bill Gates' $76 billion. Imagine that. Oh, so many things I could do with $76 billion. Let's start by buying Anchor a Church Building. <laughs> and hiring a few more staff and whatever else. But imagine that. I mean, you know what the crazy thing is? You would never walk, you'd never be like, all right, but I think I'll prefer the orphanage. We would never do that. We are God's heirs. The staggering good news of Jesus is that God is taking us out of slavery, adopting us as his children, and he is the richest being in the whole universe, which means that in Christ you are filthy rich. Filthy rich. The kingdom is yours. We're heirs. Of Christ. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, our brother, and our co heir. And so I want to say to those of you who have walked away or perhaps are thinking of walking away, you've checked out on church, you're wrestling with your faith. Here are some reasons that I think you ought to stay. Or here are some reasons I think you ought to come back. And the first is this. The message of Jesus is not about rules. There are some here whose experience of church has been one that has been based on performance. You're in or you're out based on your performance, perhaps your spiritual performance or your moral performance. But whether or not you're a part of this church community is determined by how well you perform. Your experience of church has not been about a culture of grace, but a culture of effort and duty and obligation. And I've got to say, I don't blame you if you've walked away from that. I would walk away from that. And so if that's you, please don't confuse that with the church of Jesus Christ. 
the church that Jesus has found because his message is not about duty and obligation, it's about grace. See, Jesus is about adopting children. Our, adopted, our adoption, our acceptance is not based on our performance. It's based on what Jesus has done for us. We fail. We cannot live up to the standard. Jesus has. Jesus can. He dies in your place. The message of the good news of Jesus is not that if you measure up, then God will accept you. It's that God has accepted you because of what Jesus has done for you. Your inheritance is not like a merit award given for performance. It's a gift offered by God. So the first reason is that the message of Jesus is not about rules and obligation and about duty. It's about grace. The second reason is this is profoundly relevant. This is the most relevant thing, the most relevant news, and it's more relevant to you than anything else you ever read on your Instagram or Facebook news feed. This is profoundly relevant in Sydney in 2018. You see, the question of whether a church is relevant or not has nothing to do with the demographic or the music or the design or the vibe. It has everything to do with whether or not a church heralds the good news of Jesus, that he is pulling people out of slavery and adopting them. That's what makes the church relevant or not. The relevance of this message is that every single person is a slave. If you don't believe me, just think about how you engage with your phone or your social media. You're a slave every day to your work, to the boss, to the man, to whatever it is. But more importantly, we're slaves to our sinful nature. Jesus is the only one. There is one way out of slavery, and that is if Jesus pays the price. That means this is relevant for every single person. Thirdly, the world does not have more to offer you than what Jesus offers you. This world and all of its lights and glitz and glamour and temptations has nothing to offer you in comparison to what Jesus has to offer you. What can the world offer you that is better than being adopted by God and being made an heir? To echo Jesus' statement, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Friends, I want to suggest that you're selling yourself short. If you settle for a second-rate offer that what, what this world is giving you. Psalm 16 says that in God's presence, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That is full joy, not half joy, not three all maximum joy forevermore. What is better than that? You're selling yourself short if you settle for the glories of this world, for the temporary pleasures that this world has to offer you. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Weight of Glory, famously says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is on offer to us. Like ignorant children who want to go about making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. 
that is not a better offer. Fullness of joy forevermore is as good as it gets. Fourthly, your pain isn't proof that God has given up on you or failed you. And honestly, this is a sermon in and of itself, and I wish I had more time to spend on this. But some of you have walked away because you're angry at God, because you're hurting, because you feel let down. How could God let me experience that? How, how could God allow me to walk through that valley? If he really loves me, then why? God may be a father, but is he a good father? Is he a father worth trusting if this is what happens to me? Maybe that's your experience. And to be honest, that is the experience of so many people in this room because we've heard your stories. We've walked alongside you. We've wept tears. We've grieved with you. But the reality is, whilst I can't really offer an explanation for your suffering... I don't, I don't really have the answers to that. I don't know why God allowed our family to experience a miscarriage. I don't know why God allows my grandpa to die two weeks ago. Well, I don't have answers. I don't have an explanation. But what I can offer is a demonstration of God's love. God doesn't give us all the answers, but he gives us what we need. See, we worship a God that has scars. We worship a God who is familiar with our suffering. He knows what it is. You see, in order to adopt us, in order to redeem us and forgive us, Jesus actually took your sin and your suffering upon himself. And in the darkest moment of history, at the cross, the Son of God hangs naked, bloody, in excruciating pain. And in that moment, God is screaming to this world, I love you. I have gone to great lengths to love you. I've sent my only son, the most precious thing I had, as a demonstration of my love and to deal with the brokenness in this world. I get it. I feel it too. I know the pain. And I promise to put it right. And so whilst we may not have good explanations for what's happened, we do have a demonstration of God's resolute commitment and love to us, his people. The final reason that I think you should come back is that God has adopted you into his family. He's made you his Go back to the Bill Gates illustration for a second. Imagine being a child who has been adopted and then walking away from that, thinking, I'm not really into it. It doesn't really satisfy me. It doesn't really have what I need. It would be crazy to do that. It would be crazy to walk away from $76 billion inheritance that could be yours. It is crazy to walk away from Jesus. He is stunningly beautiful and what he has done for you is what you need. You have been adopted into God's family. Do not return to your slavery. Do not go back to being an orphan 
Come home. Luke 15, the father is waiting with arms wide open for anyone who would come back to him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you have been good to us. So good, God, beyond what we deserve. Thank you that you have adopted us and called us to be yours. God, I pray that that reality would sink in for us, that that would be real for every person in this room. That we would not return back to our slavery, that we would not go back to being orphans, but we would revel and live in the joy and reality of being your children. Thank you for your spirit who is a deposit, a seal, guaranteeing our future inheritance. God, would you keep our eyes fixed, not on the lights and glitz of this world, but on the promise of your inheritance stored up for us that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven. God, I thank you for the promise that in your house are many rooms, And you've prepared a room for every person who has faith in Jesus. Help us live in the freedom of being your sons and daughters. I ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.